The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. This morning, we'll be spending our time in the Gospel reading in Luke 13. So if you have closed your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them back up there. Excellent. So I want to start by asking you a question, and that is, are you ready? There's a lot of things we can be ready for. Are you ready for the end of March break? I'd imagine if you're a parent or a student, the answer might be a little different. If you're in university, are you ready for all your final papers and exams? I'm seeing some shaking heads. It's, it's coming. Are you ready for the end of pandemic regulations? We're certainly excited to see this church full again, and I'm sure many of us are looking forward to being able to do away with masks, to see people for their whole face. But perhaps on a bigger, grander, more cosmological scale, are you ready for Christ's second coming? There's lots of things in our immediate tomorrow future, but also long-standing events that we are asked to be ready and prepare for. In our passage in the Gospel of Luke, it follows along with a series of Jesus' teachings on preparedness, on being ready for the advent of the Messiah to come. And since we have come through Christmas, we've celebrated his first coming, and we eagerly await his second And so Jesus has a lot to teach us about what it means to be ready, to prepare, to be in a proper place. Because if you've just come back from March break holidays, you would know that 8.30 in the morning, as you're all trying to get out to school and trying to get off to work, that's not the time to do all your dirty laundry. It's already too late. The bus is here. You're just going to have to wear your dirty clothes to school. So we need to prepare. We need to think about how this event is going to find us. But how, when Jesus walks into our lives, we are going to respond. And it's hard because, of course, we know when March break ends, we know when our exams are scheduled, we know when the province is lifting certain regulations, but for the rest, it's all a mystery. Like a thief in a night, Jesus says, so always be ready. And so when we come into this passage in Luke, Jesus is teaching the people, trying to prepare them for the coming judgment of God, these sort of end-time stuff that dominates a lot of our discussion, especially over the last few years with pandemic and now the rise of increasing conflict in places we didn't think possible. Prior to this passage, Jesus tests the crowd in a sense by saying, you know how to interpret the weather. You know when the wind blows a certain direction, it's going to rain, and when it blows another, it's going to be dry. You can understand certain signs and signals in the world and know what is to come. But then he says, how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? They miss the fact that Jesus is standing right in front of them, the Messiah that they have so long awaited, the signs and wonders, the healings, the teachings, yet... It's gone completely over their heads. They haven't prepared themselves to receive this in the right way. In this all kind of teaching and talking, it leads some folks in the crowd to ask Jesus about some people who recently died. How were their hearts? 
in the face of this teaching of judgment, the people are trying to get a sense for how are they going to do? How are they going to pass this final test? It's like when you're walking out of an exam, you ask the people coming out, hey, how was it? Was, did you find it easy? Did you find it hard? We're trying to gauge whether or not we've done enough studying. And we hope, we hope that they say that it was easy and they were fine, because that gives us a bit of peace. So the people bring to Jesus this conversation about these Galileans who were recently killed by Pilate. It says that their blood was mixed with their sacrifices, so they may have been in the temple being prepared to give sacrifices to God, or perhaps they were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they had their animals with them, and the Roman soldiers massacred them with their animals. We don't know, we don't have a historical account of this specific event, but... We know from history that Pilate, the governor of Judea, he did things like this. If he sniffed rebellion, if he felt that there was a people group that were threatening Roman rule in the land, he snuffed them out. So it was probably just Pilate keeping order, keeping the people in line. And it was common of the time to think that this type of punishment might have been from God for the sins of the Galileans. For still fresh in their minds, even though 400 years in the past, the people still remembered their exile in Babylon, how this ancient empire was a tool of judgment from God to them. They might think that Rome was sort of the same and that, well, these Galileans, they deserved it. They were bad people, and they deserved to be killed. But Jesus says, absolutely not. No way. He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. He wants to call them to stop looking outward, to stop looking at how other people are living and how they seem to be punished, how evaluate, how are they doing compared to me? Because if I'm just doing a little bit better than them, then I must be fine. For Jesus then brings up another example, another one that we don't have an exact historical record of, but can make some guesses at but the message is still the same. He says, Or of those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Right? This could be considered a freak accident. Some commentators speculate that maybe Pilate took some funds that were going to be used to repair this tower in the temple district to build a new aqueduct. And so through negligence and, you know, sort of, currying favor with certain people. This tower fell into disrepair, and so less a freak accident and more deliberate, perhaps. They might see that as a natural disaster, as God punishing them as well, that those 18, God made the tower fall on them. But Jesus again says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will also perish. Right? Jesus is not focusing on specific sins, specific punishments, specific people. He's trying to bring the conversation away from, well, am I just doing better than them, to the universality of sin and the fact that God's wrath is going to be poured out against all people for all sins. And we might fall into this temptation as well of judging others based on their hard and difficult life circumstances and thinking they must have done something wrong to deserve it. Do we think that it was because of the sins of the First Nations people that they suffered through residential school systems? We should not. 
Do we think that the war in Ukraine is punishment for the Ukrainians' people's sins against God? Absolutely not. Do we look at natural disasters like the earthquakes that rocked the island of Haiti and think that, well, if they had just prayed and done better in Sunday school, they'd be fine? No. Or the floods in BC in November, where farmers, in order to save their drowning cows from farther hurting themselves, just had to shoot them. That if that farmer had just prayed a little harder and gone to church a little more regular, that he would have been spared? Absolutely not. We cannot look at the hard times that people come under, at their suffering, and make a snap judgment about the state of their soul and the state of the way that they are with God. Because then we can't look at ourselves in southern Ontario, relatively protected from natural disasters, living close to one of the longest, no, the longest unprotected, unguarded border in the world, and think it's because we are so faithful and good that God has blessed us with such security and safety. Jesus is calling for a wake-up call to his listeners to pay attention, to not think others have it worse off, others are doing worse than I, I must be fine. Pay attention, he says. Repent. You are not better off because you are feeling safe now. Stop using others as a measuring stick to see if you are okay. And so he tells a story about a fig tree to draw his point in. For three years, he tells, this tree is without fruit. And fig trees in the ancient Near East there, and well, to this day, because the geography is the same, they have two seasons of fruitfulness. So over the course of three years, there were six missed opportunities to bear fruit for this tree. And so the owner of this vineyard, of this orchard, says, cut it down. This tree is just draining resources out of the soil. It's taking up time and space. Get rid of it. We'll plant a new tree, something that will bear fruit because we are losing productivity. It's taking up time, space, valuable resources. Get rid of it. But a servant says, one more year. One more year. Let me work around it. Give it another chance. But then after a year, let's just cut it down. Then you're right. If it misses two more growing opportunities, then yes, it's useless. The image of a tree is so common throughout Scripture, and it is used so often to reflect on the spiritual well-being of the nation of Israel. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 5, we find one of the most common and classic examples. For the prophet Isaiah, he records this song about the people of Israel. He says, I will sing for the one I love in the song of his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it with stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower and cut out a wine press as well. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you, I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. 
I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow, and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then, in case the people did not understand, God kind of hits it a little bit on the nose. He says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah, and the vines he delighted in, and he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, and heard the cries of distress. And we can flip back to the Gospel of Luke and see that in preparation for Jesus' first coming, John the Baptist likewise used this image of a tree and bad fruit to call the people back to repentance. For we see in chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist, he said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For they might simply think, well, because we are a people set apart, we're not like those Gentiles, we're fine. They are worse off. Again, John the Baptist is saying, don't measure yourself against others. He says, for I tell you that out of these stones, God will raise up the children of Abraham. The axe is ready at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, by all accounts, this fig tree that Jesus is alluding to in his parable, it's not dead. That's not the problem with it. It's actually likely green, with leaves, strong, healthy, the appearance of life. Standing at a distance, looking out over the vineyard, it might look like each and every one of the fruit-bearing trees most of the year. It's an okay tree, which is why he keeps coming back to it year after year, thinking maybe this year, maybe this year it will give me some fruit, because it looks okay. He has hope that this one tree will come. But when it comes time for the harvest, when it comes time to collect the fruit, that's when its deficiencies are known. And we might look at ourselves and think about the ways that we might resemble this tree. For we might have leaves that indicate we are doing well. We might be healthy. We might have financial security, employment, good clothes, housing. We might come to church every single Sunday, drop our kids off at gems, cadets, and catechism, attend a small group, donate our money. All these things we can do to give ourselves the illusion that we are doing well. In a sense, saying, yes, look at me. I am green. I am alive. I am vibrant. But it's so much more than just good looks, looking like you are blessed and have everything together. For the owner of the vineyard, who is the Lord God Almighty, is not looking for healthy leaves and healthy trees. He is looking for fruit. He's looking for love joy, peace, compassion, mercy, humility, generosity, those things that demonstrate that you are not just alive, but you are thriving and producing something to give back and away. Where we might look in the letter of First John for what this looks like. For the letter of First John, it is about love. And it's about what love really looks like when push comes to shove. For 1 John chapter 4, or sorry, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, it says, If anyone has material possessions, if anyone has green leaves, we might say, has a healthy tree, a good root system, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
It's about more than just feeling like you're thriving and doing okay by the standards at which we might measure against others. But are we bearing fruit? And the answer is probably not all the time. It's something that we struggle with day in and day out. It's easy to be a healthy tree. It's hard to be a fruitful tree. And so Jesus calls us to repentance. And repentance is a call to action, is to turn away from practices that are devoid of love and mercy, selfishly pursuing the things that we want for ourselves, to do a 180-degree turn back to God. And this is not a one-time event, but continually reorienting our heart. Not just something that we say we are baptized, therefore I did my repentance and I am fine, but each and every day waking up and repenting of our selfish desires and saying, God, make me new. Continually dying to ourself that we might live in Christ. And this is a big ask. And I'm not asking you to do it on your own because we can't. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. It says, are we so corrupt that we are totally and unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? And the answer is yes. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Because in repentance, Christ acts first. So I don't want you to leave today thinking that you have to take the initiative to grow good fruit on your own. That you are the one that has to somehow muster up all your energies to sprout even a blossom. Because the tree in this parable will not bear fruit unless the worker does something. Unless someone outside of the tree goes around and digs up its soil and places manure around it to breathe new life and nutrients into it. Because if one of your houseplants dies, it's not really the houseplant's fault, is it? It was living in the soil you gave it, in the window you put it in. It only had access to the water that you gave to it. When our houseplants dies, it's the gardener's fault. But our houseplants aren't stubborn. They're not actively trying to resist us and fight us. They are much more passive and surrender to us as gardeners. And so we might take a lesson from our difficult-to-keep-alive houseplants and surrender to what Christ is doing, to repent, to submit to the work that he is doing at our roots so that we might give new fruit, to submit to this work of renewal. Elsewise, we're going to be chopped down. Repentance comes from faith. Faith comes from the Spirit. So again, do not leave here thinking that you have anything more to do than what you are already trying to do. In fact, I would invite you to do less. Stop trying so hard to be a good Christian on your own. Stop trying to measure yourself against others' perceived success or deficiencies to try and tell yourself you're okay. Andrew Purvis puts it this way when it comes to faith and fruitfulness. He says, our faith depends on the faithfulness of God in Christ for us. So when you are feeling that even though you are so green and so strong and so healthy, but you are worried that you are not bearing enough fruit, turn to the cross. Look to Christ, who has done more than we could ever do 
Now, I did prepare my conclusion with the hopes that we were coming to the table today, but I think it still stands the same. And I would invite you to carry it with you as we come to the table next week. That as we come to this table, it is not set by our own ability, but it is set by Christ. The nourishment, that fertilizer we need for fruitfulness is provided out of Christ's own body and blood. He did that for each and every one of you. So be fed by his spirit. Be fed by his sacrifice. And let that spiritual nourishment do the good work in you. I invite you to do less. Stop trying to be so green. And let the spirit do the work of producing fruitfulness. Let us come together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in repentance for the ways in which we try to be better than our neighbors, in the ways in which we try to evaluate how we are doing in comparison to them, how we try to look for their green leaves or scoff at their barren branches. Heavenly Father, we repent of the ways in which we try to go our own way to, to produce fruit that is pleasing to us and of our own ability. We invite you to move your spirit in our heart and ask us to do less, to try less, to strive less, and to allow you to be the gardener, to prune what needs pruning, to dig up what needs digging, and to breathe new life into what needs new life. Let us be sensitive to your leading, to not get wrapped up in the things that appear to give us success, but to give out generously of what we have. Let everything that we do be governed by the rule of your love, demonstrated to us by sending your Son to the cross, so that we might come to his table week after week with a repentant heart, knowing that we mess up time and time again but that your grace is more than enough. All this we commit to you. Encourage us, strengthen us in a way that only you can. Amen.